I'd like to invite you to take the Bible in front of you and open it to Micah, Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And we uh, began to look at this passage of Scripture last Sunday and really just, just began. I mean, I, my intention, I have to be honest with you, my intention when I was going to preach on this passage was to really was to preach on the whole thing for three weeks. But then as I got into it, I realized that, that we couldn't even get past verse 5 of the, of the eight verses that I want us to really look at last week as a means of really setting the stage and looking and thinking about who God is and, uh, and, and how important it is for us to have a proper understanding of who God is before we jump into, into action. So, But we're back today, and hopefully we'll get a little bit further uh, in the book of Micah. Is that what I said? Hopefully I said that. Chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 8. Let's stand together, can we, as I read this? And I got one of the, the Bibles that, that some of you are holding from the seat in front of you because it has bigger print than my other Bible does. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam's son of Beor blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So this week, Kyla and I, along with Pastor Aaron, uh, unfortunately, Paige could not come with us because she has to have like a real job, um, but uh, we got to go to the, the pastors and spouses retreat for Nazarene pastors on the LA district. And we had a really nice time together uh, for a couple of days, just uh, fellowshipping with other pastors, worshiping the Lord together, uh, very nice, learning and growing together. Our speakers for the retreat were uh, a couple, a ministry couple. Their names are Chuck and Carla Sunberg. And Chuck is a pastor, and Carla just happens to be the president of Nazarene Theological Seminary. And so 
They were both there to speak together, and in the past, they have served as missionaries. They were in Russia for 13 years. They've served as pastors together in the same church. That would be interesting. And uh, then they actually served as co-district superintendents uh, as well. So they're quite a pair, and they shared lots of encouraging and challenging insights all week long. But I have to be honest, the, the, the seminar or the little workshop, really, that has proven to be the most memorable for me, apart from their wonderful and deep devotional insights, was a little workshop that they had done when they were district superintendents on their own district with their own pastors that we kind of cajoled them to do for us as well, that they simply titled, Don't Do Anything Stupid. And, and they had created this workshop, they had created this conversation that they held annually with the pastors on their district based on the, ver- the variety of stupid things that pastors did during the year that were reported to them. Now, I, I can say it because I am one, pastors do stupid things. And they had accumulated a great list of these things, and every year would come to their pastors and just say, all right, no names, but this is what happened. Don't do anything stupid. And so they shared a few that I can maybe pass on to you. Um, one, uh, one, one pastor, actually they heard from one treasurer who reported that a pastor had made a big uh, promotion for the alabaster offering. Now, some of you are good Nazarenes and you know what an alabaster offering is. That's when you give your change to help change the world, and a hundred percent of that offering is to go towards purchasing land or building buildings on the mission field. But this particular pastor had promoted the alabaster offering, probably even had the people walk forward with their change jars and you know, dump them into the big canister. And then he took that offering and he used it to pay the bills instead. And the treasurer called the district superintendent and just said, I don't know if this is okay or not, but it seems like that the alabaster offering ought to go to the alabaster offering. And so they had to talk to the pastor and he said, well, we had bills to pay. And they said, well, that's, we understand, but that's not how you raise the funds to pay your bills. Don't do anything stupid. A couple more. There was an Anglo pastor who, instead of having a conversation with the pastor of another ethnic congregation, another Nazarene congregation that was meeting in the same building as them, instead of having a conversation when they had some conflict, he had an eviction notice sent to that pastor. Yeah, don't do anything stupid. Um, Another pastor had left for uh, his church for another church, but when his family moved out of the parsonage, they, they left extensive drywall and even structural damage in one of the bathrooms, in particular where it was clear that the aim of his teenage boys had been off, if you know what I mean. So uh, don't do anything stupid. Now, there are... I, I, tell you, there are lots of requirements for our licensing and for our ordination. And uh, uh, it, it was a great reminder, though, in the midst of all of those things, that, that one of the most important requirements is simply to not do anything stupid. Well, we've been thinking, and we are thinking in these weeks about Micah 6, uh, 
and just what it is that the Lord requires of his people. What it is that, that God really desires of us. What, at the end of the day, what is it that God just wants from his people and what he wants for his people? In many ways, his instruction to the nation of Israel could have been the same as the Sunbergs to their pastors. The people of Israel had clearly wandered from their covenant relationship with God in these days. They had clearly wandered from their promise to be God's people based on his promise to be their God. Listen to what Micah says in various portions previous to chapter 6. This is back in chapter 2. If you have your Bible open, you can look there. Verses 1 and 2, he says, What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? He's talking about these people. They just laying awake at night thinking of the evil things that they can do, Micah says of these people. You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. Stupid. Stupid. In verse 9 of chapter 2, you have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. Listen to what he says of this nation's leaders over in chapter 3. Listen to me, verses 9 and 10. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and twist all that is right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. I mean, if you read through these previous, these early chapters of Micah over and over, you can just see some of the dumb stuff that the people of Israel were doing, and God is not hesitating to call them out on it. But he wants to tell them, and I think he wants to tell us, especially in the passage that we've read again here this morning from chapter 6, that more than just the stupid stuff not to do, there are good and right things that we are to do as we live into what it means to be the people of God. What are, what are God's people's lives to look like? Not just what, what dumb stuff shouldn't we do, but what beautiful things should we be a part of? What powerful and and, and world-changing and kingdom-oriented things should the people of God be about? What qualities and characteristics, what choices and decisions can we make, can we be, that will be pleasing and honoring to God? Well, I suggested, and you saw it again this morning. If you weren't here last week, you saw it again here this morning in chapter 6, that Micah definitely has a, a courtroom scene in mind. Did you hear it again? It's, it's uh, Yahweh, the Lord God, is judge and jury and prosecutor. The mountains and the hills, all of creation are the witnesses. And it is Israel that is, stands accused. That is the defendant that has, has, is being prosecuted. And, and I think that's helpful. Uh, obviously, to recognize this courtroom scene, 
the Lord wants to usher a clear warning to his people. And sometimes it's not until you know, we get into court, perhaps, that we recognize how serious and significant the issue really is. And so there's no doubt that, that the Lord is wanting to bring this issue to, to a head and make the people really realize how serious and significant this is. But as much as this is true, I also suggested that we might think of it not just in terms of a courtroom scene, but in terms of a classroom scene, where not only are the people being prosecuted by the Lord, but they are being instructed by the Lord as well. There's again that clear note of warning, but there's also this clear note of relationship. This clear note of love and concern between the Lord and his people. It's not the, the Lord necessarily who is out to get them here in this passage, but it's the Lord who really, I think, is out to help them. He, he's not just out, again, to squash us down, but, but to help us to become all that he has called us and desires us to be. Less, perhaps, like a a prosecutor and a defendant, and more perhaps like a teacher and a student who wants for that student to, to thrive and to learn and, and to grow. A, uh, a, 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 we begin to think about this, this language, this document, then less as a lawsuit and more as a, a syllabus. Less as a lawsuit declaring how wrong you are and more of a syllabus as declaring this is what you need to do. This is the requirements that I have for you. We talked about a syllabus and some of you, in fact, Clint is probably one of them who is very, you know, far too familiar with a syllabus. You've seen a few of these in your life. And uh, students, um, I, I think there's you know, thousands of students pouring into our community this weekend at UCSB, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe you ran into a few of them at Osh or Home Depot or Bed Bath & Beyond this week. Um, but pouring back into our community, and this weekend, or this week, they will again be handed syllabi in all of their classes that will describe to them what are the expectations, what are the requirements that they must accomplish if they hope to be successful in that class. It's that document that, that describes the instructor in the class, that communicates what the course is about and where it's going. So they'll be looking intently at these syllabi. And if you were like me, you were looking at them to make sure you did what was required and nothing more. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, you, you, you made sure to do what was required on time and get the points that were necessary, read the readings that were asked of you, and get done what the teacher expected you to get done so that you could, as all good students desire to do, draw as much out of that course as is humanly possible. That's what some of us wanted to do anyway, some of you. Um, so, so on a syllabus we talked about last week, a uh, professor will often list their credentials, 
And we're not going to go over it again, but this is what Micah does in this passage in chapter 6. He begins just by reminding the people, uh, having the Lord actually remind the people of his covenant faithfulness to them. That he has been there for them. He, has, he was the one that, that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one that brought people to them, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, in order to guide them and to help them. He's the one that brought blessing when there was those who would want to curse them. He's the one that, that guided them from point A of their journey all the way to the promised land. He was the one that when everyone else uh, left them, he was there for them. Though Israel Micah reminds us, had proven unfaithful, though they were undeserving of God's faithful and gracious activity towards them, he had acted powerfully and graciously in their lives and in their community, and his credentials were unmatched, unrivaled by by any. And so we come, though, this week to to verse 6. And we find that in response to these credentials, in response to all that God has done and all that he has announced himself to have accomplished on behalf of these people, that that, that really there is little response from the people. I don't know what we would expect. I, I, I kind of anticipated myself perhaps just a little bit of sorrow, a little bit of repentance, that, that in, in coming face to face and coming to grips with the, the announcement of all the, the, the tracing throughout history of all that God had done and the gracious ways that he had acted for them, just a, a, a report perhaps of at least a, a, a sense of sorrow, a sense of repentance, a sorrow of a sense of wanting to be and to do something else. But, but instead... What we get from these folks is what appears to be um, their minds simply turning to how they can quickly fix the situation. How they can quickly appease God and get him sort of back on their side. It's hard to say, and scholars are really divided on this, if the people, when they begin to say, what shall we bring before the Lord there in verse 6, it's hard to say, and scholars are divided on if their hearts are sincere, if they really desire to know, or if they're just completely misled, or if they're being sarcastic here, or if they're just sort of going through the motions, but in Whatever case, it seems that they are missing the point. They ask, what can we bring before the Lord? In response to all these, what can we bring before the Lord? And the question may be a good one on the surface, but their response is misguided. For right off the bat, they think of what? Sacrificial offerings. This has been sort of the go-to for Israel for a long time. It's been the way that they made atonement for their sins, the way that they related to God, and it seems like a good place to go. But their goal here is not necessarily, understand this, their goal doesn't appear to be to want to necessarily change anything in their lives, but simply to get 
God back on their side. And there's, there's a difference. You know the difference? There's a difference in responding to God this way. Are, are, are we responding with humility and, and sorrow and repentance and a desire to see transformation and change and a recognition of who God is and who we are and a need to have him work in our hearts in a new and a fresh way? Or is there just a desire to just fix it and get God back in our good graces or to somehow get back into his? It, and we hear this question of theirs. What payment will it take, in a sense, to get God off our backs? Will it just be burnt offerings? Or will it be one-year calves, yearling calves, even a more special offering? Or will it be a thousand of those rams? Or will it be 10,000 in in the rivers of oil? Will it be my firstborn child that I will need to sacrifice? If sacrifice is what is required, then surely it seems as if they're saying the bigger, the better. The more elaborate, the more extensive, the more extravagant, the better. But it seems to me as I have read this over and over this week that their efforts to sort of buy off God, it, it, it almost feels like to me that, that they've gotten in like a car accident with the Lord and they just get out and they get their checkbook out and say, what's it going to cost? You ever, you ever gotten in an accident like that? When I was in high school, I got rear-ended and, and I didn't know what to do, so I'm like, you know. We need to call the police, and so that was my, and, and the, the parent of the, the teenager who was driving got out and said, uh, no, we can, we can deal with this on our own. Let, you know, what, what's it going to take? You know, I, I'll, I'll just write you a check. It, it, what, and, and I kind of feel like I didn't do that, by the way. I, I stuck to my guns. We got the police there. We got the incident report. We got the full insurance payment. But um, yeah, I always kind of feel like that with the, with the Israelites at this point. It's like, all right, we blew it, we get it, we're not doing right, I understand, you're mad, you have a right to be, it's okay. What's it going to take? Burn offerings? A thousand rams? What? Oh, okay. Rivers, rivers, okay, okay. we can do that. Is it child sacrifice? And you kind of get this sense of them sort of buying off God. And, and as they are doing this, though, you get the sense that it's only demonstrating just how far they've fallen. This is just a further demonstration of just how far away they've, they've fallen out of relationship with the Lord. To think, to somehow come to the point in their thinking that, that, it, that it makes sense for me to, sort, to try to buy off God. And I sort of picture them again writing this check. And, and you know, 1,000, 10,000, child sacrifice. And I sort of I, I envision the Israelite person starting to write that check, and suddenly he or she is, is, is gripped by the fact that this is 
nothing. Though their Canaanite neighbors had offered child sacrifices, this is nothing, absolutely nothing that their God would ever want. Absolutely nothing that their God would ever desire or ever long for. The the animal sacrifices had been that to take the place of such an offering, and he would never, and, and I just wonder if in that moment they're gripped by this reality and begin to recognize that this isn't what God would want and that it perhaps began to dawn on them in that moment that that if not a bigger and better sacrifice, this ultimate sacrifice is that which is wanted by God, if not the bigger and better sacrifice is wanted by God, then perhaps it's not really a sacrifice at all that he wanted. And then I sense them starting to scramble. If it's not burnt offerings, if it's not human sacrifice, then what is it? And the sense of urgency perhaps begins to crowd in on them. Just what is it that the Lord requires? I just want to suggest that perhaps a lot of us find ourselves in a similar position to that which the people of Israel found them in in these days. Perhaps a bit farther from God than we would desire to be. Perhaps more distant in our relationship with him than we know we want to be, perhaps recognizing that we have not kept our part of the covenant relationship, perhaps realizing that we have not been faithful even in the midst of God's faithfulness to to us. Perhaps we've thought, just as they did, that somehow we can buy God off. Perhaps we've thought that if we just come to church enough, How many times do I need to come, God? Perhaps if we just get down on our knees when we pray, not just pray, but we get down on our knees when we pray, is that good? Perhaps it's in some act of service, some helping a little old lady across the street. How's that, Lord? Is that going to do the trick? Perhaps it's even our financial giving to the church to the kingdom. Is that enough? Is that good? We sing enough songs. We sing them loud enough. (laughs) Then perhaps we'll get it right. Perhaps we've thought if we'll just keep going through the motions, regardless of what it is that is driving those motions, perhaps as Clint said, if we'll just write that check off to a refugee crisis organization, If we just keep going through the motions, then perhaps God will finally be happy with us. But the same is true for us as it was for them. God isn't, and just hear me and hear Micah, God is not interested ultimately in our activity if it isn't motivated by a heart of love for him and his desire to be aligned in our lives with his purposes. And so here, as the people are perhaps scrambling just a bit, Micah lays out for them and for us exactly what it is that the Lord does require. It isn't empty sacrifice. It isn't just going through the motions 
Here are the expectations. Here is the sum total, really, of the, the entire teaching of the law, the sum total of the teaching of the prophets that have come before Micah. Nothing new, only what God had always and still always desires of his people. This is what is truly good and what their Lord requires for there to be true relationship between himself and his people. We read it from the NLT earlier, but this is the verse from the NIV, that which is still a little bit more uh, stuck in my brain and in my heart, uh, Micah 6.8. Let's read it together, can we? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to do or to practice to practice justice, it goes so far beyond just keeping the requirements of the law. It wasn't just, again, going through the motions and keeping those requirements. Our modern thinking, justice is largely that, that legal term. But in the Old Testament for Micah, justice meant, meant relationship. It meant, it meant meeting the basic needs of people. It meant living and, and, and coming alongside those who were oppressed, those who were hurting. It meant inviting them, as Clint spoke of, in terms of hospitality, welcoming people who were uh, on the outside into the center of the community. Justice, either by God or by the people, would be that which would right the wrongs, to act justly would be to see what was wrong and to move in such a way as to make it right. Doing justice would involve not only a sensitivity to our own actions, but it still does involve a sensitivity to those unjust activities in the world. And this is exactly why I wanted to have Clint share with us this morning. It's, it, it just can't work, and I'm one of those that just read and watched the numbers in Syria and the numbers moving into Europe and moving into the whole world, the numbers of displaced people. And I've known about it for a long time in Africa and in other places, refugees and, and folks who have been displaced. And, and we've known about it and we read about it and how easy it is to just turn the page or to flip the channel. And to know that that's a long ways over there, and as long as they don't come into my neighborhood, then we're all good. But to act justly requires that not only do we read the story or watch it on the news, but that we let it, allow it to be internalized into our hearts and into our lives. That we allow it to soak in us and allow the spirit to mix around in there with it and to produce in us the sort of of, of reaction and response that would be glorifying to God. As Clint suggested, it's different for everybody. Some might be to give. Some might be to pray. Some might be to go. But the most important thing is to not stop thinking. It doesn't say in Micah to, to, just to think justly. It, it doesn't, though, say just to, to, to ponder justice. It says to act justly. And so we look and we, and we observe and we confront and we act. A commitment to the poor, 
a commitment to the oppressed, a commitment to the powerless in a society. Who are the people? Who are the people all around us in our community who don't have a, a voice? These are the ones that we will speak for. These are the ones that we'll be called to bring into society in a way that honors them, to act justly. Micah continues, to love mercy is his second requirement. It's the Hebrew term hesed, to love hesed. And hesed is one of those Old Testament words, those Hebrew words that really defies English translation. It, it goes beyond, above and beyond just about every word that we can come up with. So usually you have to share about, uh, say about five or six words to get at it. it. It means and can speak of this, faithfulness, to love faithfulness. It can mean compassion. It can mean loyalty. It can mean devotion. It can mean steadfast love. I hope you sort of get the picture. To love this sort of loyalty, to love this sort of compassion, to love this sort of faithfulness that obviously starts not in us, but in the heart of God. To desire this, to long for this, to be people who want nothing more than God's loyal love, and then to be people who's, who, who's God, who are conduits through which God's loyal love is being shared in the community. I've, uh, I've often tried to think in our own church about the difference. Well, we've said it before, what a, and I hear it all the time, what a friendly church you have at Coast Community. And people will visit, and people will come, and you know, they'll write back, or they'll come again, and they'll say, wait, we just, what a friendly church this place really is. And that's great. I love friendliness, but I'm always concerned a bit, and hear this however you need to hear it, that we are a church that is very friendly, but not necessarily a church where there is deep and significant friendships that are being built. I think there are in many experiences, and if you are experiencing deep and lasting friendship within our congregation, I don't want to suggest that that's not a reality. That's not present. But I want us to be very, very careful that we are not satisfied with being friendly at the expense of building true and significant friendships. Does that make sense? I think what I'm talking about is a love for compassion a love for hesed, a love for, for uh, loyalty, a love for those other words, faithful uh, devotion, a love for steadfastness, to long to be people who are expressing that steadfast love of God into the world, not only among ourselves, but into the world around us as well. To love mercy one writer said, is to be committed not only to God, but also to live in community in such a way that that mercy or that love marks life together as God's people. 
to love mercy. And then the last one Micah draws out is this importance of, of walking humbly. I had, I didn't know this guy, but I had a friend who told me about a friend of his who, whenever there was an important subject or important discussion to be had with an acquaintance or with a business associate, he would always say, let's go eat on it. And that would basically mean let's go have a meal and let's discuss it over food. I, I, it's a, I, I don't know, that's a good idea. I, I, if uh, anyone ever wants to eat on something with me, I am happy to, to join you in that. Uh, but my wife Kyla and I have sort of twisted that a little bit and, and we have tried to develop something in our own lives that when there's a conversation to be had or when there's something to sort of be worked out between us or in our family, we say, let's go walk on it. And we just go for This is much more healthy than eating on it, um, to be, to, for one. It also gets us out of the house in case we need to talk about one of these two. And it allows us to be, uh, to be in a place where, where the, the beauty of nature is all around us. And amidst our huffing and you know, gasping for breath, perhaps as we hit a hill, uh, maybe we think twice about saying what we thought we were going to, what we thought about saying. The importance, though, of, of walking. And, and what, an, what, a, what a beautiful analogy walking on something is for the life that we live. And for Kyla, my wife, and I to, to walk on something. What a, what a beautiful small picture of what it means for us to, to live our lives together. To, and we use this sort of, this phrase, to to walk this journey together, to walk this life together. That's what Mike is talking about here in terms of our relationship with God. This is what the Lord requires, that we would walk on it with Him. That whatever it is, that we would enter into this journey with Him and walk hand in hand with Him through all the ups and downs, through all the challenges, through all the victories, through all the strife, through all the questions whatever the discussion might look like, that we might be in companionship, that we might be walking with him and walking in a very specific way, humbly, in such a way that says it's more important what I have to hear from you than what I have to say to you, in such a way that my heart and my life are receptive and then even responsive to what it is that he might be showing me as we walk on whatever it is that we need to journey together about. It's as we walk with God, really. It's kind of in reverse here. It's really as we walk with God humbly, guess what? That we begin to, to love mercy. It's, it's as we walk humbly with God that we begin to see the world the way God sees it. And to use a phrase that we sing about, it's, it's, the, it's when we walk with God that our heart really begins to break with the things that break God's heart. It's as we walk humbly with him that we begin to love mercy. It's, it's as we walk humbly with him that we feel the, the nudge from him as well. Perhaps the releasing of our hand to say, now go and act justly. It's out of that humble walk with God that our just actions flow as well. Well, the question the Israelites asked again was a good one. What can we bring God? 
what, what, can we, what can we bring before God most high? What a great question, and it's a question I think that God would have us to ask as well. But to remember that the answer is not more sacrifice. It's not more extensive, more elaborate worship, more uh, external show of, of our devotion to him. What the Lord requires is that we bring to him our very selves, that we bring to him our very lives, a true devotion that is expressed in a life lived that grows out of love for him and in response to his grace, a life that takes shape in action, in just action, a life that takes shape in longing for mercy and for love, a life that takes shape as we walk with God humbly. What might that look like for us today? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a song here that I I hope will prompt us and speak to us about our response to God. The, The reality is that we don't have to wonder. Micah says that he has shown you He has shown you what's good, what the Lord requires. It's not further sacrifice. It is everything that we have and everything that we are. Let's stand together, can we? Let's sing this as we think about what our response might be to God. And then I'll come and pray for us in just a few moments.